We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. Thanks, Anthony. Good morning, everybody. So I tried my best to dress in my Chris Preby garb. <laughs> Sorry, my, my beard game is not nearly as strong as his, but hopefully that won't be too distracting for you. Um, so actually, before we jump into the Word today, as, uh, as we do every Sunday, we're actually going to have a time of evidences of grace. So this is the time where we get to, as a family, just really acknowledge and Praise God for the good things that he's doing in amongst us and through the people that we're connected with. And as it happens today, my wife has our evidence of grace. So Crystal, if you could come up and share that with us, that would be great. This is a kind of a hard evidence of grace, but an evidence nonetheless. So um, several of you already know, um, about a month ago, my mom passed away unexpectedly. And so it's been really hard um, but in that, I see God's grace show up through his body. And so um, I'm reminded often of how we are the image of Christ. We are his body and we work together. And so um, from, I was on the phone, I had to cancel my mom's health insurance. And I was talking to the representative and he said, um, like I could tell it totally touched his heart when I told him what had happened. And he's like, just keep praying, just keep praying and remember no matter what you have a purpose and just keep praying and going back to God. And I was like, gosh, I don't even know where in this country he is, but that's the body of Christ showing up and having friends call and saying, I don't have words, but like anytime you need to cry, just like call me and just know that I love you. And I'm like, all of that is the body of Christ. Like, that's what we do is we show up and we reflect God's image. And so it just has been an incredible experience to know that even in loss, Christ wraps himself around us in, with his body, which is us. So I just wanted to share that today. Today, we are going to be, we were in, let's see, we were in Matthew last week. And we were in Luke the week before that, so we're kind of bouncing through the Gospels. Um, before we get started in uh, today's, um, into the, today's uh, message, it's going to be in John 2 and verses 1 through 11, if you guys want to pull that up. But before we dive into it, I just kind of wanted to remind everybody of where we've been so far. It's been... I don't know about you guys, but it's been really cool for me to get the opportunity to actually just kind of walk through the whole story this year. And so we started in creation and just the amazing, you know, this amazing visual of God coming down and bringing order to the chaos and bringing beauty and life where there was none. And then like the tragedy and the rebellion of people seeking their own wisdom apart from God's wisdom and all the havoc that that's wreaked. And yet in the middle of that, then we get the promise. And so that's God pushing forward, saying, even in light of all the brokenness, there's a plan and there's a way forward towards redemption. And so that's where we've found ourselves in the story thus far. And so, like I said, last week we were in Matthew, if you guys were here, um, 
we were in the story of Jesus' baptism. And so this is Jesus coming to John the Baptist and being baptized. And the thing that I really love about that story is it's a call back to creation. Chris mentioned that in his message last week in that we see just like in the beginning in creation where we had the spirit hovering over the waters, God was there and through his word, everything was brought forth and chaos was restored into order. And so we see that same thing present in there where we have God the Father speaking his love and approval over Jesus the Son with the Holy Spirit descending on him. And so just a beautiful like call back to that. And so this week now we're going to move into the Gospel of John, like I said. So let me go ahead and read that text for you. Uh, Again, this is John 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So before we, uh, before we start diving into the text, I wanted to kind of, I wanted to bring something up that'll probably come up a little bit later as we've been walking through the different gospels. So like I mentioned, we were in Matthew last week and Luke the week before. And so along with Mark, those three gospels are the synoptic gospels. And that's just a word that means viewed together. So those three, and the reason they're called that is because those three track along a similar story where Matthew, or where John, I mean, it does not track along that same story. And that can be somewhat disconcerting for people in different times. So I don't know, like for me and for most Westerners, when we read things that we feel are history, we have a certain we have a certain paradigm of what fits into that. And so it can kind of throw us off when we're reading things that don't fit that paradigm. So when I read history, I almost always view it as video camera footage. Like these are the facts and these are the way it happened. But what we'll see in the Gospels is that's not necessarily what they were doing. Now, everything that they're saying is true, but during this, it's much more advanced than just This fact happened, this fact happened, this fact happened. As they're laying out the story and what happened, at the same time, they're doing really deep theology, and they're also offering commentary. And so the reason I bring that up is because if any of you guys read 
past the baptism narrative, you would have seen Matthew going straight to 40 days in the wilderness, preparing for Jesus' temptation for Satan. And the other two synoptic gospels also lay that out the same way. But John's is different. So what we just read in John 2 happens directly after that baptism narrative, but it looks much different. because it, So it's actually what John offers is he says, uh, the next day, the next day, the next day, and then we get to this on the third day. And so that can seem really confusing for us, but what I want to share with you is all of those things happen. This is just not a linear progression of history. This is John trying to invite you into the story of Jesus, and he's offering you deep theology and deep commentary on that. So the reason I bring that up, too, is we're going to see that again here in a minute as we go through. But with that aside, we'll actually dive into the text now. So verse 1 says, On the third day a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. So again, if you read John, that could become problematic for you because he has on the next day, on the next day, on the next day, three days, but then the day after he says on the third day. So how could that be the third day if the day before was the third day? Well, if you look into it, there's a lot of different viewpoints on this um, and what exactly that means on the third day. But what I would invite you to is this is actually what John's doing here. Again, is that theology. He's not so concerned about this actually being either the third day after the baptism or the third day after John was questioned by the Pharisees, uh, John the Baptist was questioned by the Pharisees as you read in John 1. But I think what John is doing with this third day is he's offering you a hyperlink. What he's calling you back to is one, creation, and we can't dig into this very deeply, but in the days of creation, you could actually see them as two sets of three days, with the first third day being, like the first set of three days is creating space, and the second set of three days is filling that space. The first third day would then be the creation of the earth, and the second third day would then be the population of that with the humans as the pinnacle. And so that's one thing that John's trying to invite you back to. But it's even deeper than that. He's inviting you back into the story of Abraham, where Abraham go, went obeying God to sacrifice Isaac. And when he approached the mountain, it was on the third day. He's also inviting you into the story of the Exodus. And this will actually see there's other hyperlinks back to that. But in Exodus 19, when God's about to give the Israelites the covenant, he tells them to prepare themselves, to get ready to approach the edge of the mountain, and on the third day, he would appear to them. And so what John is doing with this is not trying to be ambiguous, but he's actually trying to call you back to something. He's inviting you into a continuation of all of those stories that have already been laid out through the Old Testament. So now we can move on to the fourth word in this passage. But no, he, so what I love about this is not only on the third day, what Jesus has done is he's gone to a wedding. He's gone to one of the beautiful aspects of humanity, something again that was created in creation before 
the rebellion. This was this ideal of a man and a woman being joined together. But Jesus here, what John is trying to show you is Jesus' humanity. Like he's going to express his deity, but in this, Jesus is involved in the everyday stuff of life. He comes and he's a part of what humans have going on. He invites us into his story in that way. So as we continue on, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to them, they have no more wine. So the next part right here, this is where I think a lot of, I've often struggled with how to interpret this, and I think a lot of other people have as well. So this is Jesus' response. Jesus' mom comes to him, they have no more wine. This is what Jesus says. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour is not yet come. And so again, like I have to try and take my Western mind out of that because like what I hear is like, woman, what, do you got, what are you bringing this to me for? And he's like, I, I don't need to handle this. But if that was a hard no, the way that comes across, the next verse wouldn't make a lot of sense in everything that proceeded for. So again, we have to take kind of our Western ideal of what this passage says and put it to the side and really look at it. One, the, when Jesus used the term woman, in the Greek, that doesn't come across as offensive as it comes across in the English when we read it. And that was actually a really typical way to refer to, like you would say, women, woman, man, like that's just in the constructs of the Greek. Now, it is an odd way for a son to address his mother, but I think that I think John is trying to do something with that that we're not really going to get into. Like, if you actually read the Gospel of John, Mary's named, or she's mentioned several times, but she's never named. You'll never see the name Mary throughout the Bible referring to Jesus' mother. It's always Jesus' mother or woman. Um, but the, other, the only other time that Jesus refers to his mom like that is a scene on the cross, and he says the same thing, where he says, woman, this is your son, and this is your mother. So in that setting, you can't help but see the intimacy in what's going on there as he's looking for that provision for his earthly mother at the time of his death. And so in this sense, we definitely want to look back to that. But even still, I wanted to share with you guys a story, because as I was reading that, it brought to mind something that happened to me. Um, with the same kind of context where we can start to miss or we can put our own expectations or our own perceptions on a word. So if you guys know me, I use the word buddy a lot. Like when I say, hey, how's it going? I say, hey, buddy, how's it going? With my kids, I'm always like, hey, buddy, come over here, do this. Like that's just what I do. Well, when I worked at a collision center, at one point I had a guy put on my team um, so I, I was his direct supervisor. I call him Buddy. He gets super offended. And he just like kind of lit into me about how it was such a condescending term. It was being derogatory. Like it wasn't appropriate for me to call him that. Like I was taken aback. It, it kind of blew me away because that's not how I meant it. Like, you know, it was a friendly thing. And it's really hard for me to change that. So this happened several times where I'm like, hey, buddy, can you look at this? And he comes unglued, goes, like, gets 
really, really lit up over this. And I, I mean, over time, I got pretty good, kind of like refrained from calling him that, and we were doing pretty well. So now, he and I have to go into work on a Saturday. And since none of the technicians are going to be around, there's not going to be, you know, anything dangerous. I brought my son, Raya, with me. He's three. I thought it would be cool for him to get to check out the cars, check out the tools, like get to see everything that's going on while me and this other guy are working. And so, of course, what am I doing? You know, he's wandering around. I'm like, hey, buddy, come look at this. Or I'm like, hey, buddy, we're not going to touch that, you know. And we just go through that whole day. This other guy, he doesn't say anything to me the whole day. But when we come on Monday, I kid you not, he's like getting a little teary-eyed when he comes up to me and he goes, watching you with your son and the way you called him buddy, I have an understanding now of what you mean by that. And you can call me buddy whenever you want. Like, I kid you not. And like, even me, I get a little emotional now because it was like such a drastic shift from where he was at. And what he needed was a new paradigm. He needed to see that word or have it re-envisioned in a different way. And so again, that applies here in the text, but I would say that applies throughout the entire Bible. We need to re-envision the way we read it and take off our paradigm, our perception, and go back to what the original authorship, what they were wanting to convey to us. So the next phrase, why do you involve me? This is really ambiguous in the Greek. What that literally says is what to me and to you. Like that's what that Greek phrase says. It even omits the is it portion of that. That's just implied from the question before or the statement that Mary made. So it's, uh, it's a little ambiguous. And I've seen it translated different ways. So this says, why do you involve me? So that's kind of saying like, why are you coming to ask me this? But I've also seen it translated where Jesus says, what is that to me and to you? Like, why are we going to get involved in this? And so I think that just speaks to the sense in which the Greek has, uh, has created some, some tension points for us to try and put this into English and figure out exactly what Jesus means. And so in order to figure that out, we have to look into some of the clues in the context. Unfortunately, the next clue that we have is, my hour has not yet come which to me feels like he's closing the door. He's saying, no, I'm not going to do this. But that's where I've always struggled because the next verse says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so again, from my Western mind, I'm saying, he's like, why are you getting me involved in this? And, and Mary's like, oh, Jesus, you're just going to do it. You, you know, you'll come along, so just, just take care of it. He's, he's being a little grumpy, but he'll get over it. He'll take care of it. But I'm telling you, that is not what's trying to be conveyed here. And I've got some, like, some reasons to back this up. So if you look at that verse, or that phrase, my hour has not yet come, that's not the only time that we're going to see that in John. It's going to come again in chapter 7, when Jesus was teaching in the temple, and they tried to lay hands on him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. That happened again in chapter 8, a very similar story where he's teaching the people became enraged by what he said because he was equating himself to God the Father, but he eluded them because his hour had not yet come. And then in John chapter 12, where he's starting to clue his disciples into what's going to come, he says, the, my hour is now coming. And so with that saying, my hour has not yet come, he's not so much referring to a no, 
but he's saying a not yet and not specifically in regard to what Mary's asking him. And so we're just going to put a pin in that for now, and we'll circle back to that in a little bit about what that means. But so, yeah, Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And so then it says, nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So what we should be keyed in here is like we just zoomed way in. We don't even know, like he doesn't mention Jesus' mother's name. We don't know how many disciples are even with Jesus, let alone which ones they were. But all of a sudden we know how many jars, what the jars are made out of, what the jars are used for, and how much water they can contain. It should be cluing us in that, like, hey, this is important. This is saying something to me. But the thing is, like, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me. So now I have to go back to the text again and find out why. Why is this so important? Well, if we know that the stone water jars, stone is used because it can't become ritually impure like clay can, and that's why it's used for ceremonial washing. And so what this is trying to call us back to is, again, that same kind of, like that same kind of idea that's in Exodus 19. Like John's bringing us back there again to say, hey, this is the Old Testament. This was the preparation for cleanliness before standing before God. Like, I want you to see this because I'm calling you back to something that's important that's happened, and now Jesus is doing something even more with what this, like, with what the old covenant was, Jesus is coming in and reinventing that, renewing it, fulfilling it in front of your eyes. And John wants us to see that. And so what, is, what does Jesus say to do? He said to the servants, fill the jar with water. So they filled them to the brim. So 20 to 30 gallons each, filled them all with water, filled them to the brim. So now we're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of water. So if you think about what Jesus is about to do and turn this into wine, 180 gallons of wine. That's, if you're wondering, I looked at, it's around 7,000 bottles of wine that Jesus is about to create. And so again, that's got, that brings us to the question, like why so much wine? We already read that they already had wine at this party. They've already been drinking the wine. In fact, they drank so much of it, they ran out. Is there really a need for this much more wine? So what's the purpose? Like, why, why did Jesus create so much more wine? And I think, again, it's calling us to what the Old Testament talks to us about wine. It's this imagery. And that's something I wanted to share, even with this whole idea of the wine, like, and why this wasn't just a happenstance, why Jesus wasn't telling Mary no, but then he just went ahead and did it because it's his mom and he wants to honor it. Like, this, this specific miracle had a purpose. The reason that water was turned to wine is very specific. Why this is the introduction to Jesus' ministry is important. And I think we, find, we can find it throughout the whole Testament, but I'll bring it up here in uh, Amos. Amos 9, 13, and 14. Do we have that, the scripture pulled up? Okay. So this is what it says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, 
and the planter by the one treading grapes. The new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. So we see this sense of where God like literally says new wine will drip from the mountains. Like wine in the Old Testament was very often a sign of God's blessing. It again harkens us back to creation and this idea of the cultivation of the vine and being able to enjoy its fruit. And that's exactly the way the Israelites saw it. And that's exactly the way the original readers of John would have heard it. They would have been being brought back to all of this Old Testament imagery of what it meant to bring so much wine. That this, in fact, we see now the Old Testament covenant coming out in this idea of the third day and of the stone jars, the ceremonial washing. And now what is Jesus doing them? He's filling them with the wine that God has promised to flow out onto his people. So then as we, uh, we move forward in that, he told them now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. You know, what I really love about this and what I've always wondered, I'm like, it keeps saying it, like the master of the banquet tasted the water and the servant drew the water. Like, when did this become wine? Like, did those servants get a little nervous? Jesus has them fill it up with water. They pull out the water. It's still water. They're bringing it over to the vine. You know, we don't know, but I just always, whenever I read that part, I always get a little amused. I'm like, is that going to be something that's going to be very awkward for the servants? But anyhow, when we move forward into the next thing, this is what the master of the banquet says. He says, then he called the bridegroom aside. And I want to camp out there because this is important. When we think about them running out of wine, this is a really big problem for the entire, wine, the entire wedding party. This, this culture is an honor-shame culture. And it would be very shameful for them to run out of wine. Now, it would be shameful for the groom's family. It would be shameful for the bride's family. It's shameful for everybody. But why does the master of the banquet go to the bridegroom? Because the groom is the, actually the one that is in charge of providing everything for the festivities. So more than anything, it would have been the groom that would have brought shame to this entire wedding party for running out of wine. So when Jesus creates this wine, when he brings the, everybody, invites everybody into this miracle, what he's done is saved a lot of face for this bridegroom, this human bridegroom who failed to provide the wine that was necessary. And so what we get in this image is Jesus, who is the better bridegroom. We see that language later on in the scriptures when Jesus is called the, groom, the bridegroom of the church. And so what we're envisioned to see is just like me and every other human groom, we failed our brides, we failed our families, but Jesus is the better bridegroom. And one day we as the church will be wed to him and he doesn't fail us. In fact, listen to what it says that he does. The master of the banquet said this, everyone brings out the choice wine first 
and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So not only is Jesus the better bridegroom, but he brings the best wine. He invites us into relationship with him, and he fulfills and brings everything that we fail to receive under our own strength or when we expect that from other people. And so that's what this miracle is calling out. It's showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament promised would be brought. This was the fulfillment of the promise coming to fruition. And he's going to bring the best. Where we have always encountered disappointment, brokenness, pain, suffering, Jesus is making that untrue because he's bringing the best wine for us. And so this passage concludes what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So again, this wasn't just something that, you know, kind of accidentally came about. Mary asked Jesus to take care of something. He said he wasn't ready, but he went ahead and did it, and it all worked out for the better. No, this was that first signpost. This is what was planted in the ground, saying this is who Jesus is, and this is where he's going. This is where his glory is going to be revealed. And we, if we have any, like, questions about that, we can look to where this heads. So I want to go now to John, to John uh, 15, or 17, I'm sorry. Let me pull that up here. John 17 and 1 through 5. So I told you in John 12, Jesus started to cue his disciples in to what was going to be happening. And he said, the hour is now here. Well, this is what Jesus said. This is in his final prayer before his arrest in the book of John. And this is what Jesus says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those who have given him, whom you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So what this passage is telling us, what John is showing us, is he's pointing forward to that glory. You now, we see that that hour has come, just like we see in John 2. And what has that hour been? It's been Jesus' glory, that this was the sign that was pointing forward, pointing you to let you know that Jesus is coming. He has been sent by the Father, to be glorified. And what did that glorification mean? What is Jesus talking about when he says that he's going to be glorified, when he's asking the Father to glorify him? His glory was displayed on the cross. It was displayed through his torture and through his crucifixion. It wasn't the glory that anyone expected, but it was shown through his submission and his willingness to allow the sins of all of humanity to be taken on him. But the beautiful part of that 
is what we read later. On the third day, hyperlink again, on the third day, Jesus rose and he defeated that sin and death so that I, you, all of us might find that redemption, that we might feel that beautiful love of the Father as he rains down the wine that comes from the mountains on all of us. And that is what John's pointing us forward to. That's the beauty of this message. So, Father, we thank you for that truth. We thank you that you do not leave us in darkness, that you have not left us over to our sin. We thank you that you sent your Son to come and be the better human, to bring the best wine, Lord, to take everything that we deserved and to put it on himself on the cross. And yet, in your love and your beauty, you glorified him through that and you brought him back to his position that he had with you before the world began. And Lord, the beauty of that is through that work on the cross, you invite each and every one of us into that position. We no longer have to be apart from you, but now we're brought in to your family. So God, I pray that we would see, just as the the head waiter did, that we would see that what you bring is the best and what you desire for us is the best and that we would submit ourselves fully and wholly into that. And so Lord, it's in your heavenly name we pray. So now, the beautiful thing about this is we get to go and we get to partake of that idea of the wine. So Jesus, in that final hour before he went, he took the wine and he told to his disciples, like, this is my blood. This is what's going to be shed out for you. So drink this in remembrance of me. And his body, the body that would be broken on the cross, he broke bread and said, this is my body that will be broken for you. And again, I think it's no accident that the way John crafts his gospel, the very next story after this is the Passover because, again, it's going to remind us of that cup. Like Chris has told us in the past, that third cup of the Passover where we say, blessed is the Father who provides the fruit of the vine. So now I invite you as a family to go to the tables. We have gluten-free on this side if you need it. And partake of that blessing that God has laid out for you and for me that you've been invited into as you are a follower of Jesus Christ.